What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 31 of Dart Against Humanity. I know that we're dealing with the fallout of the recent elections, the midterms, uh, and Donald Trump and concession speeches and another mass shooting, but I wanted to talk about something completely different because that's what I do. So this has been something that's been rattling around in my brain. It's kind of got me thinking a lot. Uh, I was on Twitter, of course, how many of these fucking stories start with. I was on Twitter, but um, Eve Ewing was asking the question of if she should see the film Bohemian Rhapsody, largely because it hadn't had good critical reports or reviews and almost nobody that she could think of was really talking about it in a positive light. So I jump in and I chime in with go see it. It hit certain checkpoints that I needed to see as a, a music fan and a queen fan. And as a writer, it did certain things well and the big thing was at the end, it had one of the top five endings for a music, a musical biopic or even possibly a music film. And I was in the theater and there were people weeping, crying in the last 20 minutes of that film. And when it ended, I was impressed and astounded. I was in shock that it was that good. And the thing is that Fonte said that it was good too and that's when I responded to him and Kathy Yandoli said she was impressed by the film too and a lot of people were coming out saying that yo I really didn't go check for the movie because I heard these negative reviews about it now it's interesting because right after that of course there's it takes no time for anything to happen in this space there were think pieces and articles written talking about how uh, Bohemian Rhapsody had succeeded in light of it getting negative reviews and, and not getting critical acclaim. And it was destroying it at the box office and it might become the, the highest grossing biopic. And it's crazy because I'm pretty sure the highest grossing biopic before that was um, N.W.A. Straight Outta Compton. And suddenly I st- it... Also, the other articles are coming up and they start putting it together with Venom. Venom, which did not get good reviews critically, but did extremely well at the box office. I feel as though it's a little different. Venom is a highly popular uh, comic book character. And it's a comic book film. So... I don't think it's fair to put it on the same comparison axis as um, a film about Queen. But what have you. They just wanted to use, it, use the example that it doesn't matter. Critical acclaim and what critics say about films don't really matter. It kind of bothered me because, well, this is not the first time that a movie's come out this hasn't been critically acclaimed or people haven't cons- given it good reviews or 
people with, with supposed taste haven't really, you know, embraced and it still did well at the box office. We call those blockbusters. This is not this is not a new thing. Now, in the case of um Bohemian Rhapsody, I feel as though people forget that film or art in general, which is something that I've stressed on this podcast over the last 31 episodes, I believe, in two seasons, is that art has to elicit an emotional response from the viewer, from the audience. And if you get that, if people are engaged with what's happening on screen, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. This is how we get cult films. A lot of cult films or the genre of cult films or or the idea of what a cult film is has to do with the fact that it doesn't follow the traditional format or didn't come out in a traditional way or was on a mainstream was on a mainstream uh, outlet and it didn't catch on with audiences immediately when it first came out or was an indie project which didn't get any reach or likes or mainstream uh, attention in order to thrust it into the space that it needed to be in order to gain more eyes. But people caught on to it later when it came out on video or Netflix, Redbox, fucking Hulu, whatever the hell, you know? Um, Whenever people had another means to access it meaning they didn't have to go to the box office or go to the theater to see it and then it started to catch on or people started to talk about it via social media but this has been the case a lot of times where the critical eye doesn't really see value in something that the That the regular, the general audience does. This isn't new. Let's put it this way. When I have discussions about art or film or music, one of the things people love to bring up is what the general public or the average person felt about it. I don't fucking care how the average person felt about it. Because for the most part, the average person doesn't really have great taste or is able to dis- able to differentiate certain things that I am however by the same token I don't necessarily care what certain critics think because to me it's the same thing they are looking at something completely different and looking for something completely different and they have all these other boxes that they want to check off and they have this other set of standards that may not matter to me. And that's just around the board. There are certain people in every space who I look to who I can discuss certain things with because I know that they're going to be able to bring ideas to the table I haven't thought of Or bring up points that I wouldn't think of. Or they're going to understand the references and the cues and know backstory and history the way is necessary for it to 
make it a real conversation as opposed to an argument on Twitter with somebody who's 19 who doesn't know shit or someone who's 27 on Twitter who doesn't know shit or someone who's 55 on Twitter and doesn't know shit. Age is just a number and you can be an idiot at any age. Just know that. Now, uh, another reason for me to have this discussion is that while we were on this subject, we ended up getting to the 20th anniversary of Belly. At Complex Con, they had this big um, event discussing Belly and its legacy and stuff like that. Now, here's the thing about Belly. Belly is easily one of the most beloved black films or cult films. I think it falls into both categories of the past 20 years. But as I was talking about Belly, I quickly pointed out that it's an ex- it's a it's a flawed film it has issues and when i did that a bunch of people jumped down my throat on twitter talking about how could you say that about belly it had this it had this it had this it had this and i'm like the acting was not great the script kind of went in a divergent path certain ideas that they brought up they never finished There were fucking plot holes big enough to drive a goddamn Datsun through. So what are you talking about? And then then someone else tweeted something about black films and standards and how if you don't get it, you don't get it. And pretty much what the idea was that you can't compare a film like Belly to oh I, I remember what it was I tweeted something about it wasn't the godfather and they're like you can't compare belly to the godfather to me in my head I'm just talking about what's a great film what's a film that's universally agreed upon by people who have taste or by anybody with a brain really because I don't necessarily want to go by just those people because they like a lot of movies I'm just like no I don't see it So I pretty much wanted to use that as an example. Like, it's not The Godfather. Just put a film in there that people agree is great. I could have said, it's not Malcolm X. Which, in hindsight, probably should have gone for that example. So this person couldn't have used this angle. It's like, it's, you can't, you can't use black art and weigh it against Something that people universally agree upon is great by white standards. Which made me wonder. Because there's always been this weird thing where we don't get acknowledged or what we make doesn't get acknowledged by the mainstream because they don't get it. Which I understand that idea. But also there is a fine line between what's quality And what's lacking. And just because something has a brown face on it. Doesn't mean that we all have to run and accept it. Even if it falls short in certain departments. As in terms of quality and execution. Just because we have to. Or we feel that we need to. We should hold our shit to a higher standard. That's how I feel. I'm going to hold out for. Someone putting in the work. And making something excellent or great as opposed to just oh this is what we get yeah i'll be happy with it i don't 
Uh-uh. Go back to the kitchen and fucking cook this the way it's supposed to be made. I'm not just going to accept these fucking burnt tater tots. Like, why don't you give me the, the fucking uh, garlic mashed potatoes that the person across from me at that table has? You know, you're not going to bring me a fucking Swanson's frozen dinner on a plate and I'm supposed to accept it because it's by us. And I feel this is the um the thing that a lot of us have fallen into a this weird space to do. Like we're supposed to just accept anything because it's black. So there's this weird thing with black art and mainstream acceptance where a lot of times you don't know where it's going to fall and where if this thing or this album or this film suddenly ends up being embraced by the mainstream or ends up getting critical acclaim, are we going to jump off board of it or do we not like it anymore? Like if they start using slang terms that originated over here, do we not fuck with that term anymore? It's there's this weird, weird, weird dichotomy. This is a weird thing that happens. Uh, one of the places that I like, I really thought about this a lot was um, if you've ever read Questlove's book, Mo Meta Blues, where he talks about the Roots career and where they're making albums and they have critical acclaim and people like their shit. But at the same time, they don't really get the same love from the black community or black outlets. And when they finally get to a point where they put out on um, things fall apart and all of a sudden it seems like black folks are fucking with them. And also they're getting critical acclaim and selling albums. It's like it's both. They're both happening at the same time and they feel like they've made it. But on the same album, they also have the um, dialogue between um, bleak and shadow from Mo Better Blues. The book's called Mo Better Blues. You follow along. And the thing is that this dialogue has been on other albums. This dialogue has been on other projects, but related dialogue has been on other projects. So if you've heard, if you've ever seen the Five Heartbeats, uh, there's a song Patty Duke, which is on um, an album I believe just had its 25th anniversary. Uh, De La Soul, uh, Balloon Mind State, and they use the dialogue from. Uh, when they get their record for the first time from Big Apple Records and they put white people on the cover because they say they want everybody to buy the album. And then it's the crossover discussion. Why are we always crossing over something? And then Dresser says, if we build a strong audience, a strong crossover audience, then we could come back. And it's like crossover is nothing but a double cross. Once you lose your audience, you'll never get them back. Now, that same dialogue is on another album that I love, which I, th I think the album went gold. I'm not sure many people remember it. They don't bring it up as much. It had its 25th anniversary, I believe, um, last year. Uh, so it's Positive K's album, Skills to Pay the Bills. Uh, he had a song called uh, How the Fuck Would You Know? Now, I'm not sure if it was a interlude right before the song or maybe during, no, no I, yeah, I think it started, it was right before the song started. 
cross over another th- double cross. When she loses, oh, she never gives it back. Then it's like that, that. Then it's like that. Then it's like, just like, like that. Yeah, so that's what happened. This is how my memory works. So, um, it was on that album. And I believe it was on more. But that, those, that discussion, that dialogue has been a long-running thing in terms of black art. You can have something, and we fuck with it. And we fuck with it heavy. And we like it. And then when they start liking it, suddenly we don't like the shit no more. We stop fucking with it. Now, this has happened in not just groups, not just albums, but entire fucking genres of music before. In the continuum of black music and black art. Okay? People always talk about how rock and roll was lost. Rock and roll was lost largely because there was no black ownership in it. Rock and roll was lost from the beginning because rock and roll was named. It used to be rhythm and black. It was named rock and roll specifically by white guys or white people, including Alan Freed, who needed to give it a name or something in order to market it and sell it as tours or get it in films. Because it's easy to have rock and roll and sell rock and roll to the white kids when there's a white guy in charge, when there's white guys speaking about it, when there's white guys like um, Dick Clark, an American bandstand, which was in Philly, then it moved, selling it as this is the music of the youth. Because in certain parts of the country, there were people resisting rock and roll because it was jungle music or nigger bop music. Or whatever derogatory term you can imagine, because the people who brought it to the children and made them dance wildly and gyrate their hips were black folks. Whether it was women who play guitars like Sister Rosetta Tharp, who brought it from the black church, which is, of course, it emerged from the black church because it's a black it's a black musical form. As is gospel, as is R&B, as is soul, as was doo-wop. As was jazz, all forms of jazz, which were abandoned at different times by black folks who moved to other art forms, other genres of music. Why? Because they could. There's a state, there's a saying, all right? Energy doesn't die, it just transforms, it just changes form. That's what black music is. And a lot of in a lot of sense, that's what music period is. So people always decry this is how rock and roll was lost. There was something else. No one talks about this enough. If you can pick up and go to another village or build another city. Then you're not going to decry the loss of the last place you lived and settled. It's going to create a new settlement elsewhere. And this is a lot of what happened with music. Now what happens is we have all this history and all this backstory. And now people are looking at history to repeat itself with rap. But here's the difference. Rap has been largely corporate and mainstream for so long. And you can't really 
brush its beginnings or its origins under the rug like you could with rock. This is happening in real time. What happened with rock happened? Like how long did the transition period happen from, all right, black folks left rock alone, but they're over here now. How long did that happen? How long was the transition period? No one talks about that. Has anybody written about this? Before it was like, oh shit, yeah, black folks don't really fuck with rock no more because they already had something else over here. Or was it just a bunch of black rock rockers sitting down like, oh God, they pushed this out of our own thing. What el- whatever will we do? Or were they over here already playing something else and they were like, yeah, they got us the fuck up out of there. Or we left. Which one is it? But the thing is that it happened. But again, it happened because at the beginning, there was really no ownership. When a record came out or a song came out, you put something out whose names were on the list is the person who wrote the song or produced the song. A lot of times the producer or the writer of the song wasn't actually the producer or the writer of the song. So what happened is you had a whole bunch of people who had catalogs and back catalogs of famous artists recordings and benefited from it and profited from it for years and years and decades and generations and were able to put their kids through college and become famous and rich off the backs of people that went broke. Now, that's not unique to just rock. That's how music industry works, period. And as long as the music industry has been in existence, this has been something that's been happening. But when you look at how black music or black art is viewed in a wider scope, there's always this thing where we're going to support this, but not that. We'll support this, but not that. But then there's some people that, that push back against it because I'm going to support this because it's better and because it's the best quality material and it's the best quality art, regardless of if it gets mainstream acceptance. But y'all all gravitate to this because they're not fucking with it yet. But it's not great. But the people who do like it from over there, y'all aren't bothered by them. But they just see it as entertainment. They don't see any real value or art in it. It's just something that they're going to consume and like now and then fuck and then not fuck with it again. Or brush it off as the shit that they like when they were 19, 20, 21. Because it's loud. And it's funny to them. And they're like tourists and tourists and they have this viewer, voyeuristic view of it. And there's this weird conversation that we need to have. Or not weird. There's a real conversation we need to have with that. Why is it that for the most part with black art, people, the general public, don't get mad when they need to get mad. They're not cautious when they need to be cautious and they shun the shit that they need to be embracing and elevating. It's a real conversation that needs to be had. And the problem is, why isn't this conversation had? Because unfortunately, if I feel like the people 
can't handle that fucking conversation. Not enough people can handle that conversation. Otherwise, it would have been had already. It's not a new... It's, I'm not bringing up something brand new. I'm not that fucking... I'm not that much of a... I'm not that smart. I'm not, I'm not a fucking genius. Well, I don't want to get into fucking test scores and shit. Again, because then, we then we'll get into another discussion about uh, the mainstream and, and white spaces and how they grade what intelligence is versus it being a, a largely racist construct in of itself that's woefully inaccurate. The IQ test, it has issues. And I think some of them were even, I think, the, the was, it, was it really the first mainstream book that really brought up the, the issues with the IQ test or where it falls short? Was it um, Glad, Gladwell's Outliers that really brought it up? There had to be something before that. But I think in mainstream culture, the pe people really gravitated to his assessment of it, even though he's been wrong about so much other shit. As far as being a thinker. And that's another thing with being a thinker. Um, so when I was growing up. You could become famous. By being a thinker. By being a cultural expert. By being an orator. By being smart. Again, I was born in 1975. When I was a kid, I would watch TV and I would see people like um, Truman Capote on talk shows, on television. I'd see um, Baldwin, James Baldwin on talk shows speaking about different subjects. Like I would see famous thinkers and, and writers and orators on shit like the Dick Cavett show. You see George Plimpton talking about stuff, you know? Like, you could just, like, flip a channel. Like, you didn't have to watch Charlie Rose. You didn't have to watch the McNeil Lara Report to see these people. You would see them on shit like Donahue. You would see them on, like, regular, everyday game shows and talk shows. Like these thinkers, Orson Welles. That's not the fucking case anymore. But a lot of the times, when we see these these black intellectuals or thinkers in this world with real time social media, there's a different lens on them. And if they are on television, there's so many people that aren't watching TV for that anymore. At the time, back in the days, TV meant something completely different. I've mentioned it in previous episodes of Dart Against Humanity, how music and art and culture spread. If you were on television, everybody was watching it. All you had to do was get on the Johnny Carson show and you were an overnight, fuck, you were a fucking household name and, and overnight everyone knew who you were. Okay? If you were a comedian and you got on David Letterman, or the Johnny Carson show. Or any show that was on late night or in the afternoon. Or if you were on a, a fucking dinosaur show. Like, think about it. In the 70s, if you got on somebody's 
a variety or a late night show, if you if Cher had you on, it was you were a fucking household name. If Dinah Shore had you on, you were a fucking household name. If Diana Ross trotted you out on that stage, everybody knew who you were. If the fucking Carpenters brought you out on stage for their show in 1977 on television, you know how many fucking eyes were glued to that television? You were somebody. Richard Pryor had the Richard Pryor show. He brought out, um, if he brought you out as either a guest, a featured act, or a comedian, or a musical guest, everyone was talking about you or knew who you were the next fucking day after it aired. This is not the case anymore. There's so many things to keep your attention and there's so many different pockets and spaces that you could be in. So you can have these little micro followings. And in terms of music and art, it changes the discussion entirely because nobody's ever going to come to a consensus anymore about anything. It's not like back in the days in the 90s when we had Source and Rap Pages and a few other rap magazines. And if those magazines said your album was a classic, it's a classic. That's all it took. Now you have millions upon millions of people on Twitter and you can have the shittiest album. But if enough of those people deem it's a classic, now it's a classic versus what critics or people who supposedly have spent their lives, you know, immersed in the music and the culture and the background and understand the the craft, supposedly, have said, yes, this is it. No one's listening to them because they're not important anymore. You can be more important than they are just via social media. But again, there's just this weird thing now where black art, it, it, it fights against the idea of what high art is or what quality is, whatever that means. Because as soon as you bring that up, this now we've delved into the world of snobbery and Again, I've discussed this. I, this is a recent podcast I've done talking about elitism and everything else. I don't really subscribe to that because there are such stringent rules and everything has to fall under these fucking guidelines and it has the fitness little box. And that's not how the world or art or culture works. There's so many gray areas. So... <laughs> If you listen, a perfect example, my boy's J-Zone said this. If you put up a list of 1994 and the greatest rap albums and I don't see the odd squads fat enough for everybody on it, then fuck the entire list. I completely agree. But by the same token, I'm this way with all art. So if you make a list of the best films of 2018 and you don't think that... um. Bohemian Rhapsody belongs on that list because it wasn't the film you wanted it to be, then 
you're a fucking idiot. And I do understand the concept that people take high art and they raise it to a place where everything needs to mirror it. There's more than one way to reach that. And just like I always say, I decry the Baseball Hall of Fame and the old writers who look at certain players and think that they don't belong in the Baseball Hall of Fame and have written them off from making it, which makes no sense to me. I feel the same way about film, music, whatever, any kind of art you can imagine. However, I still don't like Venom. I think Venom was terrible, but I understand people enjoyed it, but I still fucking hate Venom. I explained that I actually written about this before way back in the poisonous paragraphs days. I was working in a movie theater the day Fight Club came out. Fight Club, of course, based on the book by Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, people came to the theater, paid their money, sat in the theater between 30 and 45 minutes into the film. People began exiting the theater. And asking for a manager or someone to complain to. I, of course, at that time was a manager. And I took some of these complaints. There were people complaining that the film was boring. And it had no point. And it was banal. And it was ridiculous. Ultimately, they were mad because they saw the trailer. They heard the music by the Chemical Brothers or whomever they saw it was going to be uh, Edward Norton and Brad Pitt and maybe some of them loved um, the woman in the film who they knew from her working with uh, the dude that made the fucking Batman film I can't watch anymore but yeah I know his name it's just I don't give a fuck but um what happened was they were completely it wasn't what they expected it to be so they brushed back immediately and they hated it we had to end up giving out like real sorries and those type of tickets anybody who's worked at a, um, a Lowe's or a Lowe's at that time knows what that is and so, so anyway the point I'm making is that that was the opening night for this film and we never filled that theater again the entire time Fight Club was had his run in our theater. Never filled that theater again. 300 seats. Never filled it. The movie did not do as well as the, as the, uh, the studio had hoped. And it came out on video. Came out on DVD. Came out in rental stores. Hit cable. And in six months time after being released for video... It was a runaway cult sensation. It had found its audience. Fast forward a year, two years later. Critics talk about what a landmark film it is. Fast forward five years. It gains even more of an audience. Maybe its audience wasn't born yet. Fast forward 15 years. Same thing. People want to put out... Uh, special editions of it. This is what happens with art a lot of the time. It's made before it's time, or it takes a while for people to understand it. When I worked in when I worked at Tower Records, 
one of the biggest things was everybody loved um, Empire Records. Damn the man. The crazy thing is when Empire Records came out, nobody was fucking with it. You couldn't you couldn't pay people to go to the theater to see it. It hits the video stores. All of a sudden, somebody rents it. Somebody else rents it. People are enjoying it. The soundtrack is doing very well for a movie that people didn't go see. The soundtrack's doing really well. That's interesting. But now, people regard it as a classic film. They talk about it to the fucking blue in the face. But when it came out, people weren't fucking with it. So, when you take that same lens and you look at something like Belly, Belly is a highly influential film. Visually, it's breathtaking. Sonically, it did some amazing things marrying what was happening on screen with the music. It was like a music video, but 90 minutes. But the thing is, Music videos are only supposed to be four or five minutes for a reason. So, when you're trying to make a film, when you're thinking, I'm trying to make the greatest music vi- long-form music video ever, shit goes awry. Things go wrong. And when you're somebody who loves film, you're going to watch with those eyes as somebody who's into film. Now, I can see all the... I understand why people love and embrace Belly. It's fucking DMX acting next to Nas with T-bars. And Terrell Hicks looking like she's greased up, like she's about to go in the oven and, and fed to people on Thanksgiving. I mean, visually, screen caps from that film are amazing. You got Method Man, Knowledge Born. But the thing is that the acting is not fucking great. The dialogue is not great. The storytelling, not great. Character development, ay. Okay? And this is not me looking at looking at it through the lens of somebody who's talking about just white art in general. I'm talking about just art for art's sake. So it bothers me that there are people that say, Belly's a great film. Fuck you. You just don't get it. I totally got it. It's just not great. I understand why people love it. I own it on DVD. It might be the one of the best, worst movies made. If you watch Spring Breakers... All Spring Breakers is, is a fucking white version of Belly. I've been watching movies for the last 20 years that bit wholesale from Belly. But then again, anytime you've watched any type of um, indie films over the past 25 years, I've seen people bite wholesale from those films. I've seen people take whole fucking cues from... um. Clerks, from Swingers, from Go. I've seen people snatch entire pieces of their film and they think people don't notice from um, 
the usual suspects or take shit from kiss kiss bang bang i could just run down the list of so many independent fi- underground films that people have forgotten about um the way of the gun there're just so many different films that people don't realize that they just like jacked and they've used their aesthetic or their ideas or their appeal in order to make their art and on our side it's belly does that make belly a great film no but then again for some odd reason with black folks and black art we're willing to stand for and love shit that's not great I am not big on like I I had to stop watching power the storytelling was off the acting was off where characters were headed was off the shit that happened people kept fucking with it I couldn't do it star nope five episodes which I barely watched can't do it um empire nah I don't think I made it past episode six, but they have audiences and they have fans. I can't fuck with anything made by, um, damn, what's dude's name? Hallelujah. Um, the dude did, uh, God damn. I can't remember the fucking, I can't remember the character he plays. Anyway, the guy who came from theater and started making really shitty movies, but Black folks went to buy it, went went to see his shit. So every black film that came out had to follow his formula. Like the best man had to pretty much follow his formula. The movie about Christmas, was it, is it this Christmas? Like pretty much there was a stretch of black films that if they had to come out in the mainstream, they usually put them out between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And they all had pretty much a theme from this dude. But anyway... When you look at shit like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels or Snatch, which Guy Ritchie made, right? A lot of people bit his style and made films. But the thing was, where was the black guy going to, or the black woman going to be able to, you know, do the same there was no black man or woman or latino man or woman who was going to be able to make their version of boondock saints or boiler room we got a dead president as much as i love dead presidents as much as i love hoodlum those are some flawed films You want to talk about Panther or Posse? You can find those films in any black or brown household. Probably purchased for at a video store for a reduced price. But everybody has them. Eve's Bayou, which I think is a great film. I have nothing bad to say about that. There's The Caveman's Valentine, which depending on who you talk to. That there's some issues but when it comes to black art there's this thing where we can't critique it the way we want to for fear of being 
bad or going against the culture. I don't believe in that shit. I want to make the best shit possible. I want to assess it without feeling that I have to do something out of necessity or I have to like it out of necessity. Because when you can't critique something honestly or talk about its value or its quality in a real way, it's a detriment to the art itself. And it's a detriment to the critique. We're playing ourselves short. We're selling ourselves short. And it bothers me to no end. So I say this is I'm embarking on making something. But as I make it, I don't worry about who's going to like it or which audience is going to cater to it or who's going to embrace it. I just want to make the best thing possible, the best art possible. I am avoiding saying the word content. And I'm just going to deal with it, whomever enjoys it or whomever embraces it or whomever feels that this is something worth fucking with. Also, just totally forgot. Um, In trying to get to the next space, because what's going to happen is the 35th episode will be the last episode of season two. And then there's going to be a break made. And how long that break lasts, I said it uh, pretty much it's probably going to stretch until either late January or early February, depending on things that happen over this holiday season. I'll get to that later. So in the meantime, what happened is when your podcast grows to a certain size and gets a certain amount of listens and listeners, what happens is uh, this thing comes up where. There's an option where you can have the audience donate or kick in cash or whatever have you. I don't have anything like this. I don't have a fucking Patreon. I don't do any of the uh, the cash, the funding apps. I don't do any of that. But this is just something that's happened with Dart Against Humanity. I'm, I don't know exactly how it works. I think that there's a prompt that tells people that, that you can donate here, wherever there. Do whatever the fuck you want. I'm not going to tell people to do it. I don't care. That's like the same way I didn't tell people to um, rate Dart Against Humanity on Apple Music. You did it anyway. Thanks for that. Or Apple Podcasts. You did that anyway. Or I didn't ask people to push to have it added at different places. I just found out that there are at least 25 different podcast distributors for Dart Against Humanity. And on what I use, um, Anchor, they only list 13 distributors. And then there's this number for other. And again, I don't like looking at the numbers of explain this. But in this space, these are things that as an adult, you have to fucking do. So when I look at the other number, the other number is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The Spotify number gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Certain numbers get bigger and bigger, but the other number is getting really big. 
And I have to figure out for myself what these other distributors are and how many of them there are. So I just want to thank everybody for the continued support of Dart Against Humanity. Support me however the fuck you want. I'm not going to try to... I hate it when YouTubers and and Twitter celebrities and all these other fucking people do it. I'm just do what the fuck you want. I'm glad you're listening, period. Because I'm just a dude in his living room talking to a phone about whatever the fuck. Before noon. So I'm grateful and appreciative for any of that. If you would have told me six months ago that this podcast would have grown the way it has, I wouldn't. Actually, I don't know if I don't even put that much on it. So right now I'm just talking for no reason to a fucking phone and I'm going to stop very soon because I'm sounding like an idiot. And I just want this to end.